Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast. My name is Tim. I am your host. Today, I am thrilled to welcome our first-time guest, Brian Zuck. Brian is the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church, a non-denominational Christian congregation in St. Joseph, Missouri. Uh, but Brian is also the author of several books. In fact, we were just talking, and uh, he mentioned that you've written nine books in the last 11 years, so that's a lot of books. Uh, some of those include Sinners in the Hands of an Angry... Uh, sorry, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, <laughs> A Farewell to Mars, uh, Beauty Will Save the World. Uh, Brian, welcome to the Impact Nations podcast. Thank you, Tim. Good to join you and be with you. I read Sinners in the, the Hands of a Loving God. You're not the first person to make God. that mistake, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry I bet, God. That's, I bet. It's a, it's that, a, that, that happens about half the time. So, because it rolls so off con- the tongue. Yes, we're so conditioned to say it that yes, way. Yes, so let's yeah. talk about that, actually. Like, right off the bat, yeah. since I'm making that mistake, uh, I right. think that, you know, I know we're conditioned to make that mistake because of the history of that phrase, which is obviously why you chose the the opposite for the title of your book. But I think that that probably betrays something about what we believe about God, yeah. does it not? Yeah, I uh, I think arguably Jonathan Edwards' 1741 sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, mm-hmm. is arguably the most influential sermon in American history. Wow. Uh, before before I say anything more, let me just add this: yeah. that sinners in the hands of an angry God does is not reflective of the whole body of Jonathan Edwards' work. Hmm. So I'm not I'm not wanting to tie him to. I mean, I would hate to be tied to just one sermon, <laughs> especially <laughs> one of my worst ones, you know, for life. But you know, for whatever reason, I mean this this sermon has taken on a life of its own. In fact, I would say it this way. I would say no other sermon has shaped the American religious imagination more than sinners in the hands of an angry God. And I don't, I, and I don't know even know why this happened. I mean, it became very famous in religious circles, but a lot of people, I don't know if they still do it, but people my age and older uh, would encounter this sermon in school where it would often show up in an English class as an example of creative writing. It was kind of a go-to illustration, hmm. and these students would lead, read about how the, the, the God who abhors you uh, dangles you over a pit of fire as one might dangle a spider or some loathsome insect. And so it, it just has stayed around. It's had, you know, staying power, uh, and I think to our detriment. And... Um, I was already writing something along these lines and, and had, had just preached a kind of a sermon, just a, just a sermon. You know, sermons are sermons, right? Yeah. They're not books. But I preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of Loving God, and my agent, my literary agent, loved that. And she's the one that talked me into it. That should be the title of your book. And I was like, you sure? And she talked me into it, and I'm glad she did. So uh, what I do with that book, since you just – yeah. I mean, we can go anywhere you want to go. Absolutely. Yeah, let's talk. But what, what I do with that book is I ask the question. I don't tell you this, actually. There's nowhere like in the introduction or anything. I, I never say this, but I'll tell you what's lurking. This is behind the scenes stuff. What I'm essentially doing with this book is asking the question, is God angry, violent, and retributive? Now, I acknowledge that you can use the Bible toward that end. I mean, if you if you want to paint a picture of God, as Jonathan Edwards did, 
you, you can, you can have enough proof text to do it. Yeah. And people have, um, but still, is it true? And so I'm writing this book to people who, who have a general instinct to say, you know, I, I don't really think that God is inherently angry, violent, and retributive. I, I I think Zahn may be on to something when he pushes back on that. But what about, and here's really what the book is about. What about Old Testament violence? What about the fear of God? What about the wrath of God? What about the violence of the cross? What about hell? What about the book of Revelation? Isn't that when Jesus, you know, turns his back on the Sermon on the Mount and comes back and kills 200 million people? (laughs) And so I'm writing for people who have an instinct that we should understand God as love per- perfectly revealed in Christ, but have all the whatabouts because they want to hold on to their Bible too. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what the book is about. <laughs> <laughs> all right. There's so many things. Which, which I know opens up like a million oh, yeah, questions. Absolutely. You can pick one if you so like. So I guess my the number one question that comes to mind as you're saying that is, what is it about us uh, in human nature, I guess, that wants us to hold on to an angry retributive God as a concept? I, I, yeah, I think it's a simple case, a simple, maybe that's not the right word. I think it is a case of collective projection mm-hmm. that we are, I mean, undeniably as a species, we have tendencies towards anger, violence, and retribution. And unless we are really operating tight in tight quarters with revelation, we will then engage in projecting our own fear and anger and violence onto our concept of God. Is that what the Old Testament writers did? Because, I mean, they certainly, if you you read it at face value, which most, I I would say that probably most believers do, right? They're going to read these, uh, the conquest and stuff and see, it says right here, God is telling them to wipe everybody out, including the mamas and the babies. All right, so we so we've just jumped into the deep end. <laughs> That's where I like to okay, be, <laughs> which is fine. Uh, so, how to approach this? Do we have some time? Because I'm just going to go. Absolutely, yeah. Do. Let's do it. All right. If I ask a question, and this is a brutal question, this is in the book. If I ask you this question, Tim, and everyone else, hold on to your hats now because it's going to be rough. If God told you to kill babies, would you? <laughs> now, let me let me tell you something. There's only one correct answer to that question. <laughs> and the answer is no. Indeed. The answer is no. Yeah. No. Under no. 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 And if your answer is yes, well, I no, but if your if your answer is no, but you're I'm nervous. You're making me nervous. Mm. You're scaring me. Yeah. Um but this creates because the no but has a reason because we know that there are these texts these texts of terror in the old testament where god clearly is portrayed as ordering israel to kill men women there there's a particular particular passage where it's four categories men women children babies dear lord in heaven you know kill men and more okay you know i can critique that in other books but, you know, that's what war is. You start killing women and children and babies. We call that war crimes. Yeah. You end up at the Hague, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, so we want to push back and we say, okay, no, I wouldn't do that. 
But that creates a problem for the believing Christian. Yeah. Now, I have thought about this problem for at least 10 years. And I'm going to tell you, just trust me on this one. You only got three options. And it may be to you like pick your poison. You, th- there's three ways you can respond to this that, that I know. I mean, I just know that killing babies is morally wrong. It, I couldn't do it. It would, it would be the worst sin. It would be a sin against my conscience. I, I just couldn't do it. Yeah. Even if I was convinced that God told me, I couldn't do it because it would be a sin against my conscience. But we have these texts where God is portrayed as ordering such things. How, what do we do? We have three options. Number one, we can question, let's put it this way, the morality of God. I, maybe we can, we, can, we can question morality itself. We can say it that way. So that we could make this move. We could say, well, ordinarily, to kill babies is like, yeah, it's not good. <laughs> but if God tells us to do it, well, it's okay. Yeah, because because you know his his ways are, you know his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. You yeah. know maybe maybe so so there and there there are plenty of people that make that move at least theoretically. The problem is that that if you make that move theoretically, that ordinarily it's you know out of bounds to kill babies. But if mm-hmm. God tells you to, it's okay. That leaves the door open for future atrocities, and it's happened. I mean the Mystic Massacre in the 1600s in Connecticut that kind of just set the template for how English and later American colonists would deal with the indigenous population of North America, uh, where, where 700, mostly women and women and children were killed by the English colonists at Mystic in Connecticut, the Pequod tribe, they pretty much wiped out. Um, they justified it by making appeals to just what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. The book of Joshua in particular, they said, uh, but when God orders it, okay. So, so that's one option. You can say, well, there, there is a caveat. There is a huge bloody asterisk that if God says it's okay, then you can do it. I can't go there. That's a sin against my conscience. I can't do that. And I think it's dangerous. I think it's extremely dangerous. Yeah. All right. So you have a second option. The second object, object, uh, option. option, instead of questioning the morality of God, we can question the immutability of God. Immutable, you know, it's a fancy word for unchangeable. Mm-hmm. doesn't mutate, see? Yeah. C- certain things mutate and they change over time. Uh, classic theism in the realm of Christian theology says, no, God does not mutate. God does not change. God is the same. But we can question that. And we can say, well... Perhaps in times past, God ordered such things, but God has now progressed, mm-hmm. and, and God no longer orders such things. So we have no fear of that happening because that's in God's past. And yeah. God used to do things like that, but doesn't anymore. I have a problem with that. Um, there's, there, there, are, there are people who seriously embrace all three of these options that I'm presenting. I haven't got to the third one yet. The problem with questioning the immutability of God is, first of all, I'm just too much of an orthodox Christian. Small O, but I mean, with a lot of affection for the big O, yeah. <laughs> orthodox Christians. <laughs> I mean, I'm just a, I'm just a orthodox Christian, and, and this is something that Christian theologians from the Church Fathers onward have never really challenged until quite recently, uh, the immutability of God. Um, 
once you posit the idea that God is subject to change, then, you know, where, what is the ground of our faith? I mean, the ground beneath our feet is moving and we have no solid place upon which to build. So, no, I cling resolutely to the immutability of God, that God doesn't change. Yeah. And so that runs off the table for me. There's only one other option. Well, the fourth option is just to ignore the problem and pretend it's not there. That's, that's probably actually what most people do. But once you're really confronted with it, you have to grapple. So the third option is we question our understanding of the inspiration of Scripture. Hmm. We can question the immutability of God or the morality of God. I can't do either one of those. So we have to question how we, what we mean by saying Scripture is inspired. I say Scripture is inspired. I make that claim. Yeah. But what do we mean by that? I'll say it this way. I understand the Old Testament as the inspired telling of Israel's story, hmm. of coming to know the living God. Yeah. But along the way, inevitable assumptions are made. And so you just have to stay on the journey and let the Bible lead you to where it wants to lead you, which is to the perfect revelation of God, which is found in Jesus Christ. Amen. One thing that, that really kind of astounds me, and it, it shows you the big problem, is how many Christians labor under the delusion that the Old Testament speaks in a univocal voice. The Old Testament is filled with various ideas. I'll give you one example. If we were to ask the Old Testament as a unit, the Hebrew Scriptures as a, as a collection, and we say, hey, Old Testament, does God require and desire ritual blood sacrifice. And let's say, let's say we, have, we have representatives of, of the Old Testament gathered in a room. We have, you know, priests, and we have people that are from the Torah era. We have prophets. We have psalmists. And we gather them all, maybe 10 of them, representing the entire scope of the Old Testament. We ask this simple question, does God desire and require ritual blood sacrifice? And we say, uh, Tim and I are going to go get a cup of coffee. We'll be back in 15 minutes. See what your answer is. We come back and the room's in a fist fight <laughs> <laughs> because they don't agree. I mean, I can show you Torah texts where it's very clear that God requires daily ritual blood sacrifice. Uses the word require. Yeah. And then I can show you Psalms where I'll, I'll, I will just not just refer to it. I will pick up a Bible and do so. Um, so Psalm 40, this is, you know, let's, let's, we don't know, but let's, let's just, let's just theorize that this could, that, that Psalm 40 could come as much as a thousand years after the Torah, right? Mm -hmm. So we're talking about a lot of water under the bridge, yeah. a lot of time. And this psalmist dares to say things like this, in sacrifice and offer, this is Psalm 40, in sacrifice and offering, you take no pleasure. Now I can I can show you verses where it says that God it's a pleasing aroma to yeah. God, and He takes pleasure in in the ritual blood sacrifice and the burnt offering. This psalmist says, "In sacrifice and offering, you take no pleasure. You've given me ears to hear you." The psalmist's appeal is not to the Torah, but he says, "I've heard you, God. I know this is what you're saying. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Although I can show you text that says it is it required." Is 
And so I said, behold, I come in the role of the book. It is written concerning me. I love to do your will. Oh, my God. And then you get to Hosea, who dares to boldly speak in the name of Yahweh. I mean, he's speaking in the name of the living God of Israel and says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then Jesus quotes that twice. So I'm I'm just showing you that 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 the Old Testament is this journey that we're on. It's inspired. Israel is is coming to know God, Hmm. but it happens over time and there's change. The thing is, though, when you look at the text, it ends up making you feel like, and many, many people experience this, that God is changing. It's, it's, It's like this. It's like this. Think of the first person or people who began to posit the idea like this. I've been thinking, I don't think the sun rises and sets, <laughs> which is the most obvious fact in the natural world, sure. right? Everyone rises in the east, sets in the west every day. Some guy says, I've been thinking, I don't think the earth I don't think the sun is rising and setting. I think I think we're moving. Now everybody knows that's true. I hope <laughs> Just everybody knows that's anyway. true now. Yeah. But but it but, but it it never we we still we don't say oh there's a beautiful earth turn. <laughs> we say there's a beautiful sunset or a sunrise. <laughs> yeah. Because that's how it feels to us. Mm. So something is moving that is recorded in the whole scope of Scripture, but it's not God who's on the move. It's we who are moving. Yeah. Amen. And so, yes, did ancient Bronze Age people who were in the process of truly coming to know the living God, did they make assumptions that God would uh, call for war, even genocidal war, upon their enemies? Number one. And number two, uh, did they just assume that God required ritual blood sacrifice? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow. But that's that's the starting point. Yeah. Because if it the the Bible is not just a piling up of top-down dictations. Mm-hmm. Or I say it this way: the Bible is doesn't stand above the story it tells. Yeah. But itself is fully immersed in it. Mm-hmm. The Bible itself is on a journey to discover the true word of God. Yeah. Amen. What would really help most Christians is that when we say word of God, if their first thought would be Jesus, I don't mind referring to canonical scripture as the word of God. That's fine. I do. But, but only in a secondary sense, only in a secondary sense, Uh, the the true. So I could say this way. I believe in the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. And his name is Jesus. Jesus. Boom. (laughs) That's good. Uh, hey, which is which is which is not a low view of scripture. It's a high view of Christ. Indeed. Oh man, yeah. And our friend, our uh, we share a common friend in, in Brad Jerzak, who has said that on this very podcast before. Brad, too. my my dear buddy. Yeah. Uh, hey, I'm going to take this opportunity to let my father in. Uh, you can call him Steve. I call him Dad. Uh, he's okay. been waiting in the in the wings. Uh, he was having some connectivity yeah. issue, so he's connecting to audio, um, and hopefully he will get it figured out. And he's got to mute his. There we go. He's got his Facebook killed. Perfect. Hi, Dad. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Better late than never. Better bundled up with a hat and sweater on in a cabin in the woods. In Canada. <laughs> in Canada. Yeah. 
in November. <laughs> Hi, Brian. Hey there, Steve. That's a cool hat you have on. Yeah, anything to keep my head warm. <laughs> <laughs> gotta do what you gotta do. Do what you gotta do. Um, uh, hey, this is a great. I'm sorry that I couldn't get on, but I have been listening for the last little. I was bit. just gonna say this is a great opportunity to, for us to actually flip a, l- a little bit towards the the. the uh, the topic of the day that we'd set, which was uh, blessed are the merciful. Uh, Brian, you mentioned uh, that passage out of uh, Hosea that uh, was talked about in, in a recent episode based on blessed are the merciful uh, where in Hosea six, six, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, which is one of those, as you pointed out, one of those contradictions to uh, elsewhere in the Torah where he seems to be, requiring sacrifice um dad you mentioned in your teaching that this verse has been called the social point of the old testament uh what does it mean today and why did he brian why did why did jesus feel the need to bring this up with the pharisees specifically as he as he was speaking with them yeah the pharisees are a are a study in tragedy um i don't want the pharisees just to occupy the position of antagonist villain in the gospel story, which they often can, but just a a little backstory on them. Uh, They emerge during a a crisis period about 160 years before uh, the time when Jesus is confronting them. And it's during this time when, when, when Israel is is facing the crisis of forced Hellenization uh, by the Seleucid Empire, which was controlling Palestine at that time. And they were just trying to make Jews not to be Jews, to to abandon eating kosher and circumcision and all the the markers that set them apart. And the Pharisees was this movement, and the the word means separate, that just said, no, we're we're going to stay the people of God. We're going to stay devout and pure and committed and and we're going to be the people of God. And for that, it's it's very admirable that you say, yeah, that's you don't just be absorbed by the empire. Don't just become worldly. But over time, these kind of movements can become toxic. And they, by the time of Jesus, they're, they're more or less a take back Israel for God movement who sees that the real problem is everybody else. Uh, no one else is quite as pure as they are. And so they've become the morality police within Israel, and uh, they are offended that Jesus shows mercy to those whom they believe are undeserving of mercy. And that's why Jesus twice quotes from Hosea, and doesn't just quote it like a proof text to throw it at him, but he says, uh, go and learn what this means. And so Jesus is calling them to focus on a particular text from the prophet Hosea, and to seek to live into it. What what does it mean to prioritize mercy above ritual and other forms of supposed purity? Um, Because that's that's the and one of the things that one of the reasons I think Jesus is so um, critical of the Pharisees is that Jesus is more or less aligned with them. Jesus would be closer to the Pharisee movement than the Sadducees or the Essenes or the Zealots or any of these other various options. He wasn't a Pharisee, although 
I think he grew up in a village that was probably mostly Pharisee. You understand Pharisee is not a clerical position. It was kind of a religious political movement. And I think, I think Jesus family and, and village probably was very sympathetic of that. It, it's, it's like if people see me in some of my writing as being particularly challenging to evangelical Christians, it's largely because that's my family, hmm. you know? So this is, this is an interfamily discussion. And so there's a lot in the history of the Pharisees that's admirable, but, but they'd become proud. They'd, they'd taken on the role of enforcing morality as a kind of a, an unofficial police force. And in that, in their zeal for that, they, they lost sight of mercy. And, uh, you know, if you're going to sin, and you're probably going to, <laughs> I, I would I would try to make being unmerciful the last sin that you're going to commit, because if you are merciful, there's hope. <laughs> if if we're judged by, you know, I mean, we get to determine we get to determine um, the measure by which we'll be judged. Jesus tells us that. And and if we are merciful, you know, I've had critics say, you know, Brian, you you emphasize the mercy of God too much. Okay, let's just for you know sake of argument presume that such a thing is possible. Let's just say. So I'm so I'm, I'm imagining myself at the judgment seat of Christ, and you know, Jesus there, he's checking out the Zon file, <laughs> things. He says, "All right, Zon, here's the thing." Uh, <laughs> You were too merciful, and you talked about my mercy too much. Now, if Jesus says that to me, I'm going to like, okay. <laughs> so uh, what are you going to do? Because <laughs> you know the answer. I'm going to have mercy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I suppose you can become flippant. I don't want to be flippant. But if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of mercy and love and grace. Right? I mean, Right. Yeah, absolutely. And yet, I mean, we, we opened our discussion today with saying human nature tends to kind of lean towards the uh, the yeah, but side of that argument. You know, yeah, but God's judgment, God's punishment. It's interesting because you're, you're actually, you're talking about judgment. You're not, it's not, you're not shying away from, from the no, concept. No, in fact, I don't at all. I, I don't want, I don't want to give the idea that because I say that God is, has only one single disposition towards human beings, and that is one of unchanging, immutable, unending, eternal love. That does not mean that sin is without consequences. The reason we have existence at all is because God said, let there be, and God said, let there be, because God is love-seeking expression. And so all that is, I mean you know, light and water and oceans and all that is proceeds from this God who is love that creates a kind of grain to the universe. Yeah. So that if we flow with love, that is we prioritize loving God with all of our being and loving our neighbor as ourself, because there's only two sins and they're idolatry and injustice. Everything else is just a, a riff on that. Yeah. All sin is either idolatry, worshiping the wrong God, or injustice, treating neighbor wrongly. Um, if, if we go with 
okay, I'm going to coordinate my life with, I'm going to prioritize loving God and loving my neighbor. It tends towards well-being. It's not saying that, that there aren't vagaries in life that bring suffering and sorrow because that happens, but it tends toward well-being. But if we instead say, I, I don't want to love God, I want to love myself. I don't want to worship God. I want to worship myself. Uh, I don't want to love my neighbor. I want to use my neighbor. Uh, then we begin to go against the grain of the universe. Yes. And we end up enduring the shards of self-inflicted suffering. We can call this the judgment of God. We can call this the wrath of God. The Bible does. And I'm fine with it. But on a deeper level, it's consequential, not retributive. It's not God losing his temper and smiting. It's God saying, I've... I don't know if you can see it. Right behind me is a uh, a wood burning stove. Mm-hmm. I just love that thing. It's, it's like my favorite earthly object, <laughs> <laughs> and I and I love just everything about you know splitting wood and stoking it and having a nice fire in the winter. And so it's a, it's a good thing. Let's let's say this is a good thing. But I mentioned before we started the program that I'm I'm a grandfather. I have seven grandchildren that live five minutes from me, and uh, they're over here like all the time. And so they come down here. This is this is where I do my writing mostly. And um, so Papa, that's what they call me. Papa has a law. Papa gives a law. Thou shalt not touch the stove. That's now. Where does that law come from? It comes from it comes from Grandpa's love. Right? But I could imagine if if maybe a, 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 a two year old or a three year old grandchild who's not very good at theology yet. <laughs> Maybe they think, you know, I st- I'm going to touch that. And they touch it and they get burnt. And they feel pain. And they could say, oh, Papa, in his sovereignty, has burst forth in wrath, punishing <laughs> me for not respecting his sovereignty. I mean, I could see how they could think that way, but none of it's true. Yeah. But their hand is still burnt. <laughs> I have nothing but love for them. nothing but love for them. Nothing but love. There's no anger. There's no wrath. There's yeah. no malice. But breaking the law resulted in pain. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that's similar to how we should understand the wrath of God and the judgment. We are more punished by our sins than for our sins. I think it's something like that. Hmm. So as we begin to understand God in his mercy, uh, the better our understanding of his mercy, of him as mercy, embodying mercy, we should be better empowered to operate in mercy in this world. And, you know, one of the uh, outcroppings of that is is kindness. Mercy has been called the parent of kindness. In 2020... (laughs) I don't think many people would disagree. We could use a little more kindness on this planet, particularly perhaps in this nation. Um, how can we operate in mercy in the society we find ourselves in right now? I mean, every day, like brass tacks, you're on, you're on social media and somebody's saying something that just really cheeses you off, which is a good Canadian phrase. And if you can be kind on social media, you can be kind anywhere. It's like a, out of the abundance of the heart, the thumbs tweet. <laughs> so you got to be careful. You know, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, great Jewish rabbi, philosopher, theologian, he said this. 
when I was young, I admired intelligent people. And now that I'm old, I admire kind people. Mm. I get that. I mean, I really do get that. I think, um, I don't think we can move from any kind of practice of meanness towards kindness just by making a resolution to do so. I think, I think that kind of formation happens through contemplative practices, prayer, sitting with Jesus, those sorts of things that, 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 that kindness, uh, we will embody kindness through a mimesis, that is through an imitation, that we will imitate the kindness that we see around us. Now, of course, first of all, our model is Jesus, which doesn't mean that Jesus couldn't be stern and rebuke, but it, I think if you can find a passage where Jesus appears to be unkind, it's always, without exception, directed at unkind people. That's that's the if if you can find a passage where Jesus seems to be, you know, at the end of his mercy, it's towards unmerciful people. That's mm. the only thing. I mean, that's just that's the only thing that seems to um move us outside of a realm where we apparently can receive mercy. So that's why I think that's why I just said, if you're going to commit a sin, try not to make it that one. <laughs> Pick some <laughs> other one. Uh, because once you move into the realm of unmercy, um, you know, that's that's that dynamic that Jesus says, if we don't forgive, neither are we forgiven. And I don't think I don't think it's a it's a it's not a pettiness on the part of God. Oh, you won't forgive. I won't forgive. I think it has to do with where we position ourselves, that somehow we place ourselves in a position where we are incapable of receiving the mercy of God. We've just yeah. we've shut down that whole channel. And so how do we do it? I, I think I, I think we we're gonna do it by imitation, by imitating other kindnesses that we see. That's why kindness can be contagious uh, and unkindness too. But I think we need to intentionally surround ourselves primarily with, uh, I don't know, primarily. One of the ways is is uh, being immersed in the Gospels and beholding Jesus and then and then practices of prayer. But then I think we, we just need to make sure that the people that are speaking into our life, that we are admiring, that we are wanting to imitate or will unconsciously imitate are those kind of people. Yeah. And the, the present situation where we've been in politically in America, one of the things that grieves me the most is the people that are perhaps the most vocal about I'm a follower of Jesus seem to admire and celebrate bullying tactics. And that's just, that's not right. That's I mean, once you start admiring that and celebrating that and cheering that on, and we pick that up, you know, social media, maybe even more so talk radio, that kind of stuff, which celebrates the art of the put down, um, the art of insult. Um, That's that's an unhealthy thing. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I agree. Two things. One really quick. What occurs to me as you say that, to be honest, just a pang of conviction. I I enjoy, I'll admit, I enjoy some of the late night comedians and Colbert is one of my favorites. Uh, and I'll get a good laugh out of his put downs too, right? Like I, and so the, right. the, the difficulty is, um, <laughs> sometimes we can hear that and immediately think you're talking about somebody else. Um, but 
I'll just be honest. You're talking to me. Like there, there is yeah. uh, kindness needs to be practiced in both directions, and it needs to start somewhere. And it can start with me. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not. There, there is a place to take, you know, the very powerful down a notch. Yeah, you know, there, I think there is there is something prophetic about that. Uh, you just don't want you want to be careful about then just extrapolating from that. I'll carry that into all kinds of realms of life, and pretty soon I can do it to just some stranger on social media because I've learned the technique. Yeah, um, you know. Not not everybody is the most powerful person in the world. <laughs> so, so you know, let's let's try to cultivate some kindness. Yeah. And of course, everybody knows the the what's what's the famous saying by uh, Philo of Alexandria: "Everyone you meet is fighting a great battle." You know, yeah. be kind. <laughs> uh, and isn't that true? I mean, I mean, he, I'll tell you, the person that is annoying you the most on social media, just their posture, the way they engage with people, what they actually believe. Uh, I'm convinced that nearly all of them, if not literally all of them, if you could hear some story from their life for five minutes of some of the pain they've endured within the last whatever, uh, suddenly you would have a sympathy for them. Yeah. And you would say, oh, I want to give them grace. Yeah. They're struggling too. Hmm. You know, and, and they're, they're dealing with their own pain as well. And if we can understand people's stories, um, pretty soon they're not enemies anymore. Right? In some ways, I think an enemy is someone whose story you haven't heard. Wow. doesn't mean you won't still have different positions, but it's just hard to hate when you hear people's stories. Yeah. You go, oh, I'm for them. I, I, want, I want their life to be better. I want them to be able to find their way out of this abyss that they've stumbled into or maybe were hurled into yeah. because of how they grew up. And but those, those kinds of things I think are helpful to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Dad, let me pass it off to you here for a second. You said in a recent teaching, you said to be merciful, we must be go, uh, sorry, we must go beyond kind thoughts about the outcast and the poor to be merciful is to identify, to associate and be with the outcast, the disenfranchised and the mm-hmm. poor. And I think that's some of what Brian's talking about, just in terms of hearing and understanding people's story. Uh, can you give us maybe some real practical application for that? Where can people start to practice kindness when it comes to identifying and being with the outcast? Mm. Well, um, and you know, if I, let me just, preface it by saying uh the danger for me uh before was i do all this stuff around the world and then i come back home and cut my grass and watch the football game you've heard me say that before over the last nearly a year with with no travel what's evolved is i'm doing a lot of writing and you know and doing some speaking and stuff it's the same danger i can I can get caught up in good ideas about these things, mercy, kindness, inclusion. And so I've had to, to the measure that COVID allows, and if, if you're creative, you can do it, but I've had to make myself uh, step out in tangible connection. Uh, and, and for me, as you know, it's particularly been the poor these many years but now 
because of all that's been going on, this global awareness of racial injustice, not that we weren't aware of it, but it's like it's it's hit the boiling point, right? Uh, I've had to, um, for me personally, I've had to make connections in in the black community, in the Hispanic community, and start to start to build some friendships, some relationships, even with COVID. Even if I'm standing out in a parking lot, uh, you know, with with a, a black guy in a poor part of town, and now we've begun to build relationship, etc. So for me, it's uh, I need that tangible aspect, and I need to make myself get away from my office, uh, which is now my home office, and move from. Um, you know, you know that I love that paraphrase of E. Stanley Jones uh, of John one fourteen, and the ideal became real. And so I have to move from the ideal, from from what I write and talk about and think about and read about, to putting hands and feet to it at a personal level. Yeah. So that's a simple answer, yeah. uh, although probably not short enough. <laughs> um, well, Brian, let me pass that to you. I'll put you on the spot for you. you, I, you I relate to that. So I relate to what Steve was saying so much in that I think my, in some ways, in some ways, my best self is my writing self because writing is slow. It's meticulous. And if you care enough, you can get it right. I think. And, um, Preaching is a little different because you're you're in the moment and there's an audience and there's give and take and ego and it's a little trickier. But writing, you know, if you're prayerful and and but I I wrote a book in 2010, I think, 11, I don't know. Beauty will save the world. Uh, great book. I think it is a great book, and I think I need to read the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I understand because that. because I, I I'm starting to see quotes from it uh, that'll show up now and then on the internet, and I go, that's really good. Am I living that? Wow. And uh, I mean that's, and I want to. I aspire to that. I, I want to live what I'm setting forth, but. Um, it seems like we got hit with so much ugliness that it was hard for me to hold on to what I knew was true. I mean, I knew when I was writing that book, this is right. This is right. But I was writing it in 2010, 11, 12, somewhere in there. Um, and then of late, it's been uglier. And when you encounter a lot of ugliness, it's hard to say, no, I'm going to enact the way of beauty. And so I, I don't know. I might just pick that up and read it as if it's written by somebody else and see, okay, now how can I, how can I embrace this and live into this? How can I, I mean, it came out of my own experience, so it's not completely foreign to me, but I'm just, I'm just riffing on what Steve, what you just said is I understand that tension of trying to actually live what it is you set forth. I mean, I think, you know, putting things down in words and, and so that they can, be disseminated in a wide way is is valuable but but you also have to live it yep and um if if there's one one book of i mean political theology I, I get that i'm consistent with that that's easy enough for me it's that book beauty will save the world that uh because i can be right and still be ugly about it and i don't want to be that person 
And so hmm. I, I don't I don't know what else. I'm kind of rambling here. Other, other than just saying, I hear what you're saying. I feel that same kind of conviction. And so yeah. we keep trying. You know, so I would say to those who are listening is it always means stepping it always means stepping out of your comfort zone, stepping out of your natural routine. It is a decision yeah. to go out the front door and I'm going to go and put kindness into practice. That's a decision. And depending on personalities and backgrounds, it comes with various levels of discomfort, maybe even anxiety. Yeah. But I think it is following Jesus. You know, he he didn't seem to me to have office hours. <laughs> and, uh, he said, follow me. And we all know that. But the thing is, you know, we've said before, son, it's it's easier to believe in who Jesus is than in what he said. And um, yeah. And so if I'm going to if I'm going to continue on this journey of following him, I'm I'm so convinced he's out there. You know, and I do meet him out there in remarkable, wonderful ways. But going back to the question of putting kindness into practice, it, it <laughs> the ideal became real, you know. And for me, and I recognize that because of the journey the Lord's had me on these many decades now, that I he's had me out there as a lifestyle more just because it's what he's called me to. There's nothing meritorious in that. But but even if people haven't had that as a lifestyle, every time you step out the front door intentionally to connect, and I believe connect with the disenfranchised, the oppressed, the poor, the, the ones who need a hand up. And, and a hand up can very often be nothing, not much more than just talking to people, praying with people. Uh, yeah. Give a little bit of food away, because I don't know about your city, uh, Brian, but but in our city, we've got massive homelessness in yeah. uh, Albuquerque. And of course, it's on the rise all over the place. I just saw a picture this morning in Texas. There were literally thousands of cars lined up. Yeah, I saw that food. too. Yeah. Yeah, so that said something. It's not like, gee, I wonder what we can do. <laughs> um, we can choose the, <clears throat> the discomfort of taking that step for tangible kindness. You know, at Word of Life Church, the church I have pastored now for 39 years, we came up out of the Jesus movement. But over the last um, 15 years or so, we've become much more cognizant of the church calendar and and lectionary and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's rich and it means something to us. This Sunday is the is the end of the church here, and then we start over the following Sunday with Advents. So this coming Sunday is is the end. Uh, of the, our year-long journey, and it's called Christ the King Sunday. Hmm. And it's you, you start, you know, Advent anticipates the birth of Jesus, and then you get Christmas and all the way through. And then the final Sunday is, all right, we're living in the time that Christ is King. And the gospel reading for this Sunday is the sheep and the goats. That is the judgment of the nations based on how you treated the least of these. Yeah. And so that's what the kingdom of Christ looks like. And so to tie it in with mercy, well, I mean, 
when when you feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, visit those that are sick and in prison, what are you doing? You are acting mercifully to them. And what does the king say? Come, you blessed of my father, enter the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. The moment you start engaging with the poor and the suffering and the stranger and the immigrant and all that in terms of mercy, inspired by Jesus, the kingdom is there. I mean, the kingdom is happening. It's That is the kingdom. That's what it looks like. That's what it does. It's happening right there. Amen. So it's a kingdom of mercy. I mean, it is, right? I know. Be merciful just as your father is merciful, right? Sermon right. on the Plain. I well, love that. Well, yes. you see, you see in, the, in, in Luke's Sermon on the Plain, it's be merciful as your father is merciful. It's, it's obviously the same text, more or less. Yeah. Matthew is the one that says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But yeah. it's not the it's not the perfection in, you know, sinlessness. That's unattainable for us. Where we're to, where we can move toward maturity in is mercy. That, that's again. That's why I say if you're going to emphasize, you can't go wrong by emphasizing the mercy of God and treating others in mercy. I, I just I don't see that you can really err there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When we talk about mercy to to those who do not know Christ, who are not Jesus followers. And we're we're talking about the mercy of Christ. What are we juxtaposing that against? I mean, uh, in the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church, we say, "Have mercy on me, a sinner." Um, when we're sharing the gospel with people and talking about the mercy of Christ, what's the best way to frame His mercy? I'm going to be drawn to the cross. Um. I mean, Jesus on Good Friday is the recipient of the ultimate injustice, right? The sinless one is supremely sinned against. The cross is where the sin of the world coalesces into a hideous singularity. It becomes one thing, and it's violently sinned into the body of Jesus. And Jesus' response is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And th- this is not the the son is not acting as an agent of change upon the father. John is so clear about this. I mean, how many times do we hear Jesus say in the gospel of John, I only do what I see my father do. I only say what I hear my father say. The father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. So when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, Jesus is not acting as an agent of change upon the Father, but that is maybe the pinnacle of revealing who God is. Hans Urs von Balthasar says, being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. So who is God? God is the one who would rather die than kill his enemies. Yes. God is the one who, when the ultimate injustice is being committed upon him, doesn't cry out for justice. Avenge me. It's forgive them. Um, and unless we're deeply committed, I think, to following Jesus, 
we can have, you know, use King James like bowels of mercy toward select people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Christ calls us to have mercy upon all. And I think that takes a deliberate allegiance to Jesus to begin to live into that. Because there's, you know, look, if you ask me to have mercy on the undocumented immigrant in St. Joseph, Missouri, I'm already like, I like doing that. That's, that's fun for me. That's not even hard. I mean, I'm, I want to do that. Uh, there are other people that I'm kind of would like to see them get their comeuppance. You know what I'm saying? And so for me, that's why I say, well, I think we have to hear their story and then also be wanting to imitate Jesus and find a way to be merciful to them. Because, yes, we know that Jesus was merciful to, we could say, say the poor and the outcast and the, the sick. But he's also merciful to Zacchaeus. And we cast Zacchaeus now in a kind of a different. But, I mean, Zacchaeus is a rich guy colluding with the empire. He's working with ice. I mean, we don't like this guy. And Jesus says, I want to have, I'll go to his house. Mm-hmm. And so I, there, there are acts of Jesus' mercy that can offend people on both the right and left. Wow. You, you've touched on the cross, and I'd love to just kind of spend a few minutes talking about some of your work on the cross. You've... Uh, you have talked about the cruciform gospel in a lot of your uh, writings and teachings. Can you just tell people what you mean by the cruciform gospel? <laughs> Can I? Uh, <laughs> perhaps. Uh, I don't know how long it'll take me. Um, let's, let's, let's go back to beauty. Um, beauty's interesting. I mean, it's, the Greek philosophers called it one of the three transcendentals. Uh, or let's say prime virtues. We want the, the, the true, the good, and the beautiful. We want the true, not for utilitarian purpose. We want it because it's true. We want the good because it's good. We want the beautiful because it's beautiful. It doesn't have to serve any other end. I want the beautiful because it's beautiful. Uh, but beauty, truth and goodness are a little different. Beauty is the more obscure, abstract, People know beauty when they see it, but it's awful hard to define. Hmm. It's, it's remarkable how few synonyms there are. I mean, I know this. You write a book on beautiful on, on beauty, and you realize there are precious few synonyms for the word beauty. I mean, <laughs> there's not many. <laughs> and if you ask people to define beautiful, they struggle. If you read a definition, you'll go, eh, okay. But it doesn't seem to really capture it. Beauty is something more we experience than can actually articulate what it is. But for the Christian, but, but whatever beauty is, it does have to do with shape and form. Whether it's a poem, it's the, you know, the arrangement of the words, a sculpture, clearly the arrangement, a painting, it's the arrangement of shape and color. It has to do with form. And the form of beauty in the Christian life is in fact the cross, the cruciform. I, I you can't see it, but I have a very beautiful Russian Orthodox cross icon sitting over there. And, and if I showed it to you, you would go, oh, that's beautiful. And it is beautiful. And, and I've been in churches and cathedrals around the world and seen artistic portrayals of Christ crucified that just about anybody would go, that's beautiful. But think about it. 
look, look, when the Romans were crucifying people, they weren't trying to create acts of beauty. <laughs> In fact, it was abhorrent. It was deliberately intended to, do, to be so. Uh, Roman crucifixion was a, por- a form of psychological terror upon an occupied people. It's like, you resist the empire, this is what we'll do to you. And so there was a time much earlier in my ministry, way back, when I would maybe I would protest against these beautiful portrayals of Christ crucified. I'd say it wasn't like that, which is true enough. So that if we had a journalistic photograph of what happened at Golgotha on Good Friday, we might look at it one time, regret that we had, and never look at it again because it would be repellent, abhorrent, ugly. So are the artists doing something wrong in portraying Christ crucified in terms of beauty? No. The role of the artist is not the role of the journalist. The role of the artist is to alert us to what we may be overlooking. Wow. So you think of Van Gogh's Starry Night. You know, it's maybe his most famous painting with those swirls of stars. And you say, is that what a Starry Night looks like? Well, not objectively in a one-to-one ratio, but rather what, what Van Gogh is doing is saying, hey, people, wake up. There's majesty in the night sky. And what you see on Van Gogh's canvas, Starry Night, is what should be happening in us when we behold the majesty of a Starry Night. Yes. And what the artists are doing is they're saying, yeah, there was, was the cross ugly? It was, as, it was as ugly as human sin magnified to the nth degree. But that's not the only thing that was present there. There's also the love of God saying, I forgive. I absorb it all, and I forgive it all. And that's beautiful. So the cross is this collision of, of sin and, and love and ugliness and beauty, but in the end, love and beauty win. And so that becomes, that's the cruciform gospel, and, and then that becomes, it's, it's why I pray every day. I try to imitate, I try to, you can't see me. I try to stretch out my arms and I, and I say, Lord Jesus, you stretched out your arms of love upon the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen. That's beautiful. Terrific. Yeah. Can you can you give people any uh, practical instruction on how to how to arrive at that place of meditating on beauty? Well, yeah, maybe there's a lot of things. I, this is just this is just something very yeah yes for practical. This is very simple. This isn't you know this is very simple. This is an example. I, I, I practiced this exercise for, I don't know, for months. I live 12 minutes from the church I pastor. It takes me 12 minutes to drive there. 13 if there's heavy traffic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's, 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 you know, it's, I live on kind of the edge of town and it's kind of, kind of through just, you know, the suburbs and there's a shopping mall and it's just, you know, it's America. And so I, but I said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to find something beautiful every day on my drive to church. You know, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in, you know, some, I'm not in a national park. 
right? I'm just you know, in Missouri, Midwest, St. Joe, Missouri. And you know what? You can do it. You know, or look at that flock of geese right there. With that V shape, you know, and that, and or or it's the way the sun looks, or it's a, or it's a tree, or it's just, it's just some person walking their dog, but there's just something elegant about that moment. And I think cultivating deliberately an awareness of the beauty that is actually flashing all around us is a very healthy, you know, project, and it, it's worth doing. And, and what for me, what it does. I mean, it does a lot of things, but one of the things it does is it cultivates gratitude. Because when I see these 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 moments of beauty, for me, the impulse is to thank somebody. And because I'm a Christian, I know who to thank. <laughs> and I thank God. And I think I think just, you know, the more we can live into a deep rooted deep rooted gratitude, right? Because you know, social media. 24-7 cable news, um, wants to help us live into a perpetual rage. Yeah. Uh, here's, what, here's what you should be pissed off about today. And then tomorrow we got four more things. And that's, that's how they build. And remember, they're entertainers, too. They're not just informing. They, you're going to do something 24-7. You got to keep bringing the audience back. And for whatever reason, they've chose, because I think they understand human psyche, uh, that if, if we can get people enraged about something, they'll keep showing up to, uh, I think over time, that's just, that's just horrible on your soul. Yeah. And so the opposite of that is to cultivate gratitude. And for me, that's recognizing that, that life is beautiful. Remember that movie, Life is Beautiful? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's kind of the ultimate example of a guy that's in, you know, a Nazi concentration camp, but he finds beauty around him and helps helps a boy find that beauty. I'm thinking of uh, I've forgotten her name, a Jewish mystic woman who uh, I, I think I talk about her in my book. Either beauty will save the world or unconditional. One of them. I've forgotten her name. Uh, who who is a mystic and she wrote poetry and meditation. She ended up dying in the in the concentration camp, but she she talked about how she could find beauty in the midst of her suffering. And hmm. I'm not doing a very good job by Halisim Eddie Halisim Etty E T T I I think Eddie Halisim. Somebody you can look that up and find out about her. But that's an example of someone that in the midst of that, which we think is completely hell on earth, she still was able to find deliberately, intentionally find beauty. Yeah. We have uh, <clears throat> progressively over the last 10 years, <coughs> pardon me, I get choked up just thinking about it. Um, we have really focused on the question as we're reaching out in the nations and getting a chance to we hope demonstrate the gospel as well as proclaim it with words is that the question is not how not how powerful is your gospel but how beautiful is your gospel mm, i love that and i love that, that that's the question i put to our leaders we we do zoom calls to just talk about the nature of our gospel and um i, I absolutely i i read a book one time called beauty will save the world and uh, it did have a very big impact on me. Uh, I've read a number of your books. 
but but it was confirmation of what I think the Spirit of God had been stirring in me from, I don't know, maybe 09 or 10, uh, of that. Not how, uh, how authoritative, not how powerful. Is your gospel beautiful? Is it always beautiful? And, yeah, and see, we're used to asking two questions in the church. Is Pardon it me? true and is it good? Mm-hmm. So there we have Christian ethics, you know, the definition of the good in the light of Christ. And is it true? Well, that we could, we, one way we could think about that, you know, the truth of Christ is apologetics, you know, uh, yeah. defending the truth of Christ. That's fine. Christian ethics and, and apologetics have their place. I'm all for them, not against them. But we probably need to lean into Christian aesthetics. In other words, we need to be asking three questions, not two. We, we want to ask, will it succeed? Is it true? Is it good? Is it a good idea? We need to ask the third question, is it beautiful? Yes, we do. And 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 would the common man, woman on the street regard it as beautiful? We don't get to answer that question. We ask, is it beautiful? And would other people? So so we want to live lives like this. That So our critics would say this of us. I don't believe what they say. I don't like what they preach and proclaim. But you have to admit and they point to something about our life. And they go, that's beautiful. Much yeah. like the Romans did with the early church. That's okay. how the church prevailed ultimately. Yeah, they take care of the, we, we're trying to wipe them out, but we'll give them this. They take care of the widows and the orphans and the abandoned. And Yeah, it's true. It's true. And in fact, our experience, and I'm sure yours is the same, is that with this, with this paradigm of a beautiful gospel, we're we just see all over the world thousands coming to Christ, yeah, in a in a little different way than standing on the platform and giving them the gospel and and that's okay. I'm for that, I guess. But but we're watching remarkable. You know, we we just we just got a report. Tim and I last week from one of our teams in the Philippines who have been getting uh, water filtration, clean water, because they're just you know, typhoon after typhoon. And we knew about that. What we didn't know was two weeks ago, somebody wanted to get baptized. And one of the, because people come to Christ and 200 people show up because they've been impacted by the beautiful gospel. See, I love so, that. Yeah. I love it, that. It's, yeah, I absolutely, that, as I said, that's become really our litmus test. All right. So, what we're- so if it's story time, let me tell this one too. This is a good one. Um, for those who are regular listeners to the podcast, know Mike Brown. He's our partner in Kenya. Um, <clears throat> Mike is engaged in mercy for the poor, for the disenfranchised, for the oppressed at all times. I mean, he's just 24-7. How, how can we uh, show the love of Christ to those who are downtrodden? And uh, he disciples all of his people to do the same. Well, one of his people got connected with the deaf and dumb community in Nakuru, Kenya, and began to share the gospel with the deaf, who, of course, because of their disability, are feeling disenfranchised and cut off from the world. They heard the gospel, they responded to the gospel. There are now, 
I can't remember the exact number. I think it's over 260 uh, people in the deaf community who are, are uh, have come to Christ and are participating in one of seven different services that uh, they're doing throughout the week. Uh, they've spread things out partly because of COVID, but also they needed to make room for so many more people that are coming to Christ right now because they're constantly operating in mercy and saying, this is a beautiful gospel and you are invited to, you're included. Uh, and so that's what they said to the deaf and dumb community. They said, you are included too. Uh, and at one point, Mike gathered them all together and just prayed for an infilling of the Holy Spirit, uh, that they would experience the Lord in a whole new way. And the guy who was interpreting for those who were there, the, the deaf community, the guy was interpreting signs, and he suddenly says to Mike, he says, um... They're signing gibberish. It makes absolutely no sense. These are not, these are not known signs. And Mike immediately, of course, said what we're all thinking. They're signing in tongues. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love it. That is a beautiful gospel. I mean, that is beauty. Uh, and it just, I, every, I've been telling that story all week because I just, I love it so much. Uh, that's and, the coolest thing I'll hear all day long, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> and that's what God's doing. And now, by the way, one of those, uh, one of the members of that community are now preaching uh, to the church. They're preaching in sign, and then they've got somebody who interprets into speech for, for awesome. those who don't know sign language. That's, um, that, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so... That yeah, that's beautiful, and I think that's that's the sort of things we want to reflect on. And and as you said, Brian, it's really tempting to fall into the vortex of twenty four seven news cycle that is just constantly. It's not just bad news, but it's ugly. I mean, you know, right? And it's angry. Yeah, yeah. But beauty is a wonderful answer to angry. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, this has been a really good discussion. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for joining us. I, I sure well, appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. meeting both you, Tim, and Steve. It's my pleasure. Um, is there uh, is there anywhere you'd like to send people? Are you you got a book you're plugging right now or a oh, conference you're you going to be doing? Uh, maybe right now, Postcards from Babylon might be a good time to read that book. Um, my, You know, my name is a great filter you know, Zond, Z-A-H-N-D. There's not many of us. Most of them are in Switzerland, but so, so you can find, you know, there's brianzond.com where I blog now and then I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I'm, I'm easy to find. And, um, you know, there's a documentary coming out uh, on postcards from Babylon. I, I didn't, it wasn't my idea. I didn't even know the filmmakers when they first reached out to me. And, um, it's it's going to be premiered kind of in a film festival online. Everything's online right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, is it this Friday night? I think it's this Friday night. I mean, that's a select group, not ever. But but in January, I think January 21, it comes out. It's it's just called Postcards from Babylon. It's, it's kind of based on my book. I haven't even seen it all yet. <laughs> uh, Perry, Perry and I were walking the Camino, uh, you know, the Camino de yeah. Santiago, 500-mile walk across Spain last uh, fall and the film crew came over and walked with us for about, I don't know, maybe four days and filmed and interviewed. And I know who, I mean, I know that my friend Shane Claiborne is in it. Walter Brueggemann is in it. Oh, great. I, I haven't seen it all. So, so maybe that's something I'll, I'll promote is keep your ears and eyes out for post 
Cards from Babylon documentary. I do know. I know. I do know the release date is January twenty-one. I mean, it'll be streaming. I don't have all the details. I don't. I don't have a stake in this. This is you know. Yeah. They're just. They're doing it, and I. I hope it's good. I've seen clips. Everything I've seen so far, I think, is pretty good. So hopefully, it'll be good. Cool. That's well. We'll watch for that. And uh, would you join us again, maybe uh, early next year? We could. We could sure. talk about that to. a little bit. That'd be cool. Sure. I'd be happy. Awesome. To. Uh, hey, I. Normally, in the middle of the podcast, I'll interrupt our discussion and uh, and do an ad for whatever Impact Nations is up to right now. I didn't do that today because, honestly, I was so engaged in our conversation, I forgot to. Um, but let me just plug this. Uh, if you're looking for some beauty, we just gave two great examples of, of things that are going on in the Impact Nations world right now. There is stuff going on all the time. We've got just stories of God's goodness the the reality of heaven breaking in and completely changing somebody's reality, uh, reaching the brokenhearted, uh, lifting up the oppressed. I would encourage you get plugged in. If you're if you're not on our uh, on our mailing list, you know we send out just a basically a good news newsletter about once a month. Uh, head to impactnations.com and click the contact us and, and you can f- fill out a thing. Or I think in the footer you can even get a free ebook if you want, and then you'll get on our emailing list. Um, and check out our just be on Facebook uh, at, at the Impact Nations Ministries Facebook page because we're posting uh, just about every day some amazing stuff God's up to. So. Um, Come hang out with us. That's where we're hanging out. Uh, and if you're not already subscribed to the podcast, I don't know what's wrong with you. Do it. I tell you every week. Subscribe. Then you don't have to go find it. Impactnations.com slash podcast. There's buttons across the top for whatever platform you like to listen to podcasts on. You just click subscribe and it'll all happen for you. Um, Brian, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a joy and a pleasure. Thank you.